to make the lives of the people coming after you easier and make the memories and the thoughts and, and those who came before you, to make them proud of you, that you've done something, that you've made a contribution, that you've made a difference. And I think that's the key thing. You've made a positive difference. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Welcome, Good Ancestors. Today I'm speaking with British-Nigerian author, satirist, and media executive, Nels Abbey. Nels is the author of one of the funniest books I came across in 2020, called Think Like a White Man. Told in satire through the words of the fictional Black character, Dr. Boule Whitelaw, Think Like a White Man is a satirical self-help guide for Black people, which explains the rules by which mediocre white men continue to get ahead. This book, which had me laughing out loud with its tongue-in-cheek truth, is the first satirical book on race of its kind, which makes Nels's writing so unique, yet so relatable for so many Black people and people of color. In this episode, we talk about a wide range of topics, including Nels's upbringing, our shared admiration of Malcolm X, Nels's experience in the corporate world, and the power of satire to address racism. Nels's writing has been published in every major quality British newspaper. He's a social and political commentator and regularly appears on Channel 4 News, Newsnight, Radio 4, Times Radio, LBC, and Sky News. He's also a former BBC executive, a Clore Fellow, a Penguin Fellow, a Fellow of the Royal Society for the Arts, and he sits on the boards of various companies. Nels is also the founder of the Black British Writers Guild. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and I'm here today with our good ancestor, Nels Abbey, who also goes under the pen name or has been dictated to by Dr. Boule Whitelaw III, who helped him to write his first book, Think Like a White Man, which I want to recommend to everyone. But firstly, thank you for being here, Nels. Leila, it's an absolute delight to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to speak with you. I came across your work on Instagram, and I don't even know how I found your account. Uh, started following you, and you would just post these Instagram posts that were very truthful, but that would always make me laugh and always make me chuckle just a little bit. And then I would swipe through and then see the cover of your book. And I was like, I need to get this book. I need to order this book. I need to read this book. Um, And then we finally connected and I have your book and I have read it. And I can't wait to have a conversation with you about it today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. This is the strategy to have that worked a little bit because I'm I'm very new to Instagram. I don't really do, I'm not that, I'm not really good on on social media. I'm not one of these young people who's just one of these experts. I just got on it and um, thought it's okay offer some people what I always do with the books offer some substance and then um, but make people laugh at the same time so make them laugh and think and hopefully you'll win them over so 
there we go. It definitely works. But I must say, I'm equally as big a fan. I mean, it's not even a comparison. I am a huge fan of yours. What you're working <laughs> with, with me and white supremacy and everything else and all the other work you're doing and the talk you're giving, how you're helping enlighten our society is absolutely important. You're doing God's work. It's absolutely important. I'm immensely grateful to you and blown away to be here with you today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. But this conversation is about you and I can't wait to ask. I have so many questions, but we will start with our very first question that we ask every single guest. Who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned familial or societal who have influenced you on your journey? Thank you. So it's a brilliant question. And I think I'm going to start with possibly the most obvious ancestor for most Black people I could think of. And that would, of course, be Malcolm X. Malcolm X, of course, influenced me. Malcolm X is a story of immense redemption and second chances in life and really finding yourself and discovering yourself and living with a purpose and unapologetic living and being a stand-up person, no matter the threats, and enlightening people who came after you. I mean, Malcolm X was just somebody who's just, whose entire story is almost, almost like a fairy tale to a certain degree it doesn't um, seem real you're right it's, it it really doesn't yes it, it really doesn't mm-hmm. like a guy who was so literally the streets hood 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 brother to the back yes. thief whatever you could think of then goes to prison and transforms his life the way it was shown in the movie was beautiful but even when you i think listening to his autobiography then reading it too or one way or the other has the same impact too that this was just a fascinating fascinating story of extremes to a certain degree went from an extreme yeah. professional criminal to an extremely enlightened unbelievably enlightened man who was sit around the table with the best of academics from around the world and mopped the floor in their day in day out it was a, mm. a beautiful man who I feel that me knowing who I am and the knowledge of self that I I think I've been gifted that I've been gifted so that even the concept of knowledge of self yes is something that we have to be because think of our experience our existence without certain people, and we'll come to some of those other people too, but if you take of the black experience, the black existence, without the enlightenment and the the forthrightness of a Malcolm X that we could pass on from one generation to another, whose predictions are still coming true till this very day. Yes. Literally, everything he said about, the stuff he said about white supremacy and whether it's liberals here or so conservatives, the yes. fox and the, and the wolf amongst everything, so he, everything he says, it, it was true then, it's true today. So if you want to know yeah. what's happening a lot of the time, I would say make sure you understand, read Malcolm X or so, and you'll probably, you'll really understand, you'll get a good grasp of what you're talking about when you're looking at white supremacy or so. So I will say he's yeah. certainly somebody who was vastly important to my life. To all of us, I feel, I must, re- I must emphasize it, take Malcolm X away and think of mm. who we are as people. How do we perceive ourselves as people or so? I yeah. think it was something almost, I don't know, people believe in, in prophets and angels or whatever else it might be or so I, I truly believe that the divine wisdom this man had that it was god said it was said to us to help us and really just usher us and literally his autobiography is a rite of passage for every single black person your life is not complete as a black person unless you've read his autobiography or at least watched um, the film so yeah yes i love that so i watched the film when i was younger but i'm actually listening to his autobiography at the minute as read by Lawrence Fishburne, which is amazing, ah, and I highly brilliant. recommend it. Amazing. Brilliant. But you're right. Like, as I'm listening to it, it, there are parts where I'm like, oh, I remember it differently in the movie. That's not exactly how it happened, yeah. actually, in real life, right? Which yeah. is often the case. But 
one of the things that I'm really struck by in his journey is that journey from where he started to who he became and the less really difficult lessons he had to learn after submitting himself fully Mm. to an ideology that he, you know, he really believed in and the ways in which it, even as he rose to prominence within the nation and then had to once again, find another reiteration of himself. Right. I think, yes, it's, highly influential for us as black people, but I think he transcends. Yeah. It is a story of humanity as well. Truly. I, I remember, so if I give you for example, so I was young when I watched the film the first time, I think it was about nine, it came out in 96, but I think I was, yes. it was in 96 or earlier, but whenever it came, I think it was 96 it came out. So it came out around those days, but I watched it probably about 98. And I remember just being captivated by it, just captivated by the film and I watched it. And then somehow or another, at the time I was living, I was, we'll come to this in a bit more detail, I'm sure, but I was living in Nigeria at the time. So I was uh, born mm. in Britain, but I was one of these naughty African kids who, when you misbehave or so, you get sent to the old country. So I got sent to the old country. I got sent to Nigeria. And I was watching Malcolm X with my younger brother. My younger brother was always He's four years younger than me, but he's always been wiser than his years. So he's a lawyer mm. now, a brilliant guy. And he quickly recognised there's something profound. But we didn't know anything about Malcolm X. We were British Nigerian children. We didn't know. The name Malcolm X was not something that was close to us when we were little. The name Martin Luther King we'd heard of, but Malcolm X we hadn't. Right. And then um, I just remember watching it at that time. I was about 16, 17 years old. And I was fascinated with it. I was fascinated with this man who went from, there's one scene in it in particular that really captured me. But at the time, Christianity, it still is to this day, I'm a Christian, but it was something that he said. So I was sent to a church school in Nigeria, to a Baptist school, and the concept of blasphemy. So if you said, oh my God, that would earn you six strokes of the cane. So for example, you cannot call the name of the Lord in vain, you blaspheme, you get beaten. Right. So that was beaten into me quite a bit. But what was funny is that there was a moment of the film where Malcolm X, where the, the pastor, there was a white pastor who used to come over and speak to the prisoners. And him and Malcolm just didn't get along from the beginning because Malcolm was always challenging him intellectually, which I must say inspired me significantly. But when he first got to prison and they put Malcolm X in the hole when he's still uh, Malcolm Little, and the pastor then said to him, oh, yeah, Jesus said something about Jesus loves you. And then he's time Malcolm X like shouting, yeah, what did Jesus do for me? So I don't think it was in the autobiography. But of course, with Denzel saying, Denzel did a great job being Malcolm because it really Yeah, he did. And um, yeah. him just saying, yeah, what did he do for me? What's he done for me? And just like, and it, to me, it almost knocked me out of my seat in terms of like, I can't believe this is being said. And it was just a, a such a concept. And it dawned on me that actually when you think of it, this man was so low down and so caught up in a system that was designed for him to fail. And he literally mm. had fallen into a trap. He had fallen into a trap, a trap that still exists Till this very day. To this day. Yeah, this very day or so. And it was fascinating to just see how he responded to it. But he actually took the brother who had also been through it or so, who had also been through it, when he's actually there conking his hair and everything else, and he just says to me, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that brother in the, in the shower then just shows him the way and the truth and the, the light. And it was a fascinating thing. But I remember I listened to it. So at the time I was with this was about 10 years ago. I was working as a banker. I was working for, an, for a large asset management business in the city of London. And then I was listening. So how it tends to work, um, we, when I was working in asset management, I'd have loads of screens in front of me, but I could always have mm. one earphone in just in case. If I wasn't on the phone, I'd have one earphone in. And always I'd be listening. People think you're listening to the news or something else, but I'd just listen to podcasts or something else. And I was listening to Malcolm X's autobiography. And for some bizarre reason, at the end of it, and I, I was there about 31, 32, doing very, very well for myself. And 
when O.C. Davis, like when they they read O.C. Davis's eulogy at the end and everything else, I, I just started crying at my desk. That mm-hmm. I just couldn't. I just, something just came over me. Richard, something just coming over me right now. I just literally just at my desk. I just I, it wasn't like I was blurting out, but I just felt tears running down my face, and I was just there trying to fight it back. And you know what? I just felt like, oh my yeah. goodness, that there was something about it. So Malcolm X definitely touches my soul. I mean, a lot of people, whether it's in Britain, America, anywhere else, so it's just such a fascinating person and everything he represented to us. But there we go. I'll say mm-hmm. he's one person. Another person, I'll just, I know I've, I've spoken so much about Malcolm, so I'll probably cut down the rest of the people. I want to ask <laughs> one question. Am I allowed to say anybody who is alive? Must they have got No, they can or, be living okay. or transitioned, familial brilliant. or societal. Mm-hmm. Ah, brilliant. So I'm sticking with... I'm sick. So I, the second person I'll say... And I won't, I won't go into, into too much or so, but I'm saying it principally because he's, he's passed away, but I also will say the same about my mother, but it's my father. So um, I met my, again, so I was born into foster care. So mm-hmm. I'm, I met my foster parents were my first mum and dad. And I remember they were lovely people, truly amazing people, taught me a lot. My foster mum was a German Jewish lady. She actually taught me what racism was when I was a very, very little boy. She was the first person to really just explain that to me. And in for a while, I was a bit confused about it, about how this white lady could know so much about racism. It's now, as a, a grown-up person, you've read a thing or two about German Jews in Germany or so, you realise that, yeah, this was clearly a person who yeah. knew a thing or two about racism. She knew, but, right. Yeah, she knew. She was well-placed to it. But I just remember, um, so when you're growing up, and I think that fatherhood and parenthood across the board. So I always had my mum in my life. So even though I was in foster care, my mum, my biological mother would come over every two to three weeks and she'd bring us everything we wanted, sweets, everything. So she spends time with us. And I also go and spend time with my mum every summer or every other holiday or so. So my mum was always in my life and I was grateful to my foster parents. But my dad is somebody, I'm saying this in public now on your show, because of the fact that, I don't think I gave him his roses when he was alive. My dad died when I was 25 years old, so that was about 15 years ago now. So when my dad was out of the blue, just clearly out of the blue, it's all of a sudden, and um, you never really prepare for moments like that. But what was interesting about my dad is that I didn't meet my dad until I was 12 years old. Mm. So I was about 11, 11, maybe 12 years old, and when I got sent to Nigeria. And it was such a fascinating moment because I had never met him and he had never let met me before. And my dad was this... Well-to-do, I would say, not wealthy, well-to-do guy who was living a bachelor's life. And then my mom sent me to go live with him. And he went from living just a bachelor's life with um, spending so much time with different people and living a fairly fast life to then just being a dad. And I just remember Mm. when he picked me up at the airport, growing up as a boy, you're always told things. Like if you're a boy, for you to be told that you look like your dad and you don't know what your dad Mm. looks like, it is a very Mm. confusing thing. And I don't think, so that gap in my heart and my mind and that psychological burden was there so I the only picture I've seen of my dad was pictures of him in flares in the staying alive era in the 70s or so so this was the early 90s and then I got sent to Nigeria and then it was such a traumatic experience because you're being ripped away from everything that you are which is Britain and then sent to Nigeria right and then in your head you've got a head full of British programming about what Africa is or so I still had the literal do, do lions roam in the streets stuff in my head imagery in my head or so and so I was just right. a classic British child. And then um, I met my dad. It was kind of strange. I remember seeing him at the airport. And the first thing I thought to myself was, is that him? That He doesn't look like me. I don't look like him. It's like it's been. I remember he just came over and he hugged me so tightly. He said to me, you're home now. You're home. Oh. And he was just, and he was fighting back tears. And I thought, and I, for me, at first I was a little bit like, 
I always thought that I would be a bit bitter seeing my because I hadn't seen him around my entire life. But because both of us knew that this is it, it's just us now. We didn't have time to do the whole, I don't like you, dad, one for another. We just had to get on with it. Right. And I remember um, I had the scary image of Africa in my head too. And I even the first time, the first time I was on an airplane, and I'd just gone on, and when you go on an airplane, you're a child. The funny thing is that um, you always think it's going to crash. Right. So I had that paranoia. So I was scared of the airplane. I was scared of the, it was a Nigeria Airways flight. I was scared of pretty much everything. And when we were growing up, there were a lot of hijack movies. Oh, as well. yeah, loads, <laughs> loads, loads. Right. Do you know what's funny to me is that I flew that flight I took to Nigeria. That was the 31st of December, 1991. Wow. And I remember that date because I got, my flight took off at 10.30 p.m. And I was wearing a suit. So Nigerians love overdressing to go on airplanes. So I was wearing a suit. Yeah. But I fell asleep. I fell asleep and my shirt was wet because I was crying so much and my shirt, all the tears just gone to my shirt. <laughs> and then what was funny is I then woke up. I woke up because I was waking up by commotion. And I was a bit mm-hmm. worried about what was happening. So when I woke up, after I just cried myself to sleep, it was people just, some people were speaking in tongues, people were praying, people were doing all sorts of things. And then um, all of a sudden, the captain started to count down from 10 to zero because it was they were about to say Happy New Year. And uh-huh. everything was so crazy to me at that moment. I didn't know that that was what was happening. And I've never been around what? Nigeria like that when they're doing full-blown Nigerian evangelical prayers and everything else. <laughs> and then um, everybody's doing it. You see people there in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. People standing up. <laughs> and then the captain shouted, did the 10 to 1, and the Happy New Year. And everybody's like, Happy New Year. Everybody went crazy, just hugging each other. Then there's a bit of turbulence. People just quickly sat down again, too. And then um, it was quite crazy. I just went back to sleep after that. I just remember that moment. And then where I woke up next, I was pretty much in, um, in Lagos. And mm. I met my dad. And then meeting my dad was a fascinating moment because I just remember you had a bad image of um, Africa in your mind because of what you grew up watching, right. Live Aid and everything else. Yeah, that, I was going to say all the Live Aid and all those adverts, right? Yeah, which does just fl- so flies around kids' yeah, yeah. mouths and potbelly kids, and yes, I don't think we're wrong. I got the potbelly myself, even because I went to a tough water school, but I never had the flies <laughs> on my face. That was quite hot, <laughs> even when I was in Nigeria. My lowest heart was yes. the foot stuff. It takes some neglect to get the flies on your face. Yes, but yeah, but that was it. That was what you had in your mind. I remember my dad pulled up, and then my dad, somebody went to go get my a valet pulled my dad's car around. It was a Mercedes. And I thought, okay, this guy's he's not doing bad for himself. He's okay. So my stand the living quick went up. But when my dad and I got inside his car, he turned back round to me and he just joked and said, Yeah, there are no lions in the streets here, first of all, or anything else. And then <laughs> and he knew, he knew what was going to be in my mind. And he just started saying to me, There's no lions in the streets, monkeys aren't gonna come into your bed, no nothing, there's no giraffe or anything else. So you're gonna live a good life here. This is a good place. And he said, this yeah. is your home and you need to be proud of it. And you need to know where oh, you're from. Yes. And it's fascinating. My dad taught me a lot. I mean, so many things about being a man, about being responsible, being respectful. Mm. And then I can say to him, any men, any men who's listened to us who have a problem with their sons or so, no matter how grown or young your sons are, so that's just the game. That's the way it goes. That every two men are always going to collide eventually. And then, but mm. you have to find that way to make it, to, to humble yourself and make it work because one day or another you if you're the dad hopefully as should be the case you won't be around and neither your son's going to miss you forever or so and um i think it's good that if there's any problems so heed my message go and make it up with mm. your son be a father to your son and also to go and make up with them get along 
because he has to learn a lot from you. No one's going to teach you to be a man other than yourself, is what I would say. Yeah. And your wife or your partner, too. That's the way it is. There we go. Oh, but yeah. Thank Ooh, you. I think I've spoken so much no! on those two, but I can speak on this more. <laughs> It's probably a bit different to some of your other interviews. No, I'll mention the three more because that'll let us move on. The other three people yeah. I've mentioned, the lady who inspired me to write was an activist and a hip-hop artist called Sister Soldier. She's an American lady, truly brilliant lady. She's become a... they reduced her name to a political idiom. Yes. But she was a, one of the right. brilliant people I know, Sister Soldier. Of course, Fela Kuti was a, a huge inspiration. I was lucky to go to... I went to school in the same city where he's from a place for that Belpata. Mm. And then finally, but definitely not least or so, an ancestor will have to pay homage to or so. Every freedom-loving person has to always respect and pay homage to is a lady called Harriet Tubman, who's always been yes. dear to her heart and who hasn't been given her the right, we haven't got the right film on her just yet. We're still working on it, but it hasn't just landed just yet. But there we go. Mm. Okay. Oh, actually, it wasn't someone made one, but yeah. Anyway, that's a Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Leila. Yeah, please. I talk a lot. No, I love it. Thank you. I appreciate it. And as you were talking about your experiences going back to Nigeria, I just remember. So, you know, I'm East African. I was born and grew up in Wales, had a Welsh accent for the first. Wow. Yeah, I had a Welsh accent for the first, I think, 11, 12 years of my life. But when I was nine, my parents decided let's move back home right and I didn't like it I just found it really difficult and I think it was because I was so used to a western worldview a western way of being it was very different from, from what I was used to but I remember that being there and the experiences that we had were very different to what I was seeing on the TV as well. Yeah. And I was like, where is that Africa? Because that's not where we lived. You know, that's not what I saw when we were there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Did you go to boarding school? Yeah, so I didn't go to boarding yeah, you school. You thought the bullet there, did. trust me. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was with my parents were there. I went with my parents. But we did go to private school. And it's actually the only time that I've ever been taught by black teachers was in Africa. Yeah. I've never in my education had a black teacher other than when we lived in Tanzania. It's funny you say so, because uh, that was one thing. I mean, my story, I'm going to have to write it. I, I will write it after about two books time. But how I got sent to Nigeria is crazy because my teacher, my teacher was a guy called Mr. Glee. I'd never had a black teacher too. I'd never had a black teacher, not one. Mm. All my time growing up in the UK, particularly when I was in the countryside as a little boy in foster care. And um, I had this one teacher who was dating a black woman, and his name was Mr. Gleason. I don't know where in the world he is now, but I hope he's doing well. And um, he was dating this Nigerian lady. And it was him who suggested to my mum that I be sent to Nigeria. Yeah, wow. So, so early 90s, nobody wanted to be Nigerian. Nobody wanted to be Nigerian in the early 90s. So, so everyone said to be from the Caribbean. So right. my name being Nels Abbey is very easy to just claim a Jamaican. So I just said I was Jamaican. So for a long time or so, me and my friends, we worked ourselves up into this frenzy of Jamaicanness or what we thought was Jamaicanness or so, often misbehaving. Whereas in reality, later on we found out that the only Jamaican guy in our midst or so was actually a well-behaved guy who got himself a scholarship. And then uh, but the rest of us worked ourselves up to this frenzy of what's... Um, and we're all just faking it. None of us were from right. the West Indies whatsoever. We're from Nigeria and Ghana and Sierra Leone, amongst other places or so. 
the majority of us got sent back home. We found ourselves in difficult situations. But what was funny about it was that this teacher, he knew I was lying. He knew that I was not being honest. And he just said, so during my PTA meeting, my parents' teacher association meeting, he just said to my mom, and I wasn't there, I didn't show up for it. And this was, um, I think it was a godsend. I actually think I'm quite happy that they did so in retrospect because it kind of saved my life. Or made me, made me who I am today. Mm-hmm. But he um, spoke to my mom and he, it was kind of funny. He said, yeah, so Nelson's Nigerian, isn't he? And then my mom said, uh, <laughs> yeah, he is. He said, yeah, well, he tells me he's Jamaican. And then um, <laughs> the next thing he said, uh, he said, well, I was in Nigeria. I was in Nigeria. And I think Nigeria would be a good place for Nelson to go and live. He goes to a good boarding school in Nigeria. So I, the discipline's very good. Anyway, within four months of him having that conversation with my mom, actually less wow. than four months, within probably about two, three months of him having that conversation with my mom, I was in Nigeria and I was in the boarding school. And the first mm-hmm. black teacher I had, uh, yeah, he was a cane-wielding psychopath who would actually beat you for any old thing. And, um, and it was kind of funny because he did say something to me that, yeah, I'm, I don't know what I prefer, whether it's the cane or racism or so, but I thought it was oh, yeah, yeah, we are where we are. <laughs> but it did cross my mind a long time. I think that's something I didn't have a black teacher for a long time, but when I had one, I preferred the white men significantly. <laughs> but this guy beat me like a slave. This guy was horrendous. So there we go. Oh, gosh. It's embarrassing to say that, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about your book, Think Like a White Man, which. I was reading it and I was just like, this book operates at so many different levels. So before we dive into it, can you give people an overview about what the book is about and who it's written by and who it's written for? Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Think Like a White Man is a satirical self-help book on being a Black person in the professional world. That's the metaphor it is written in. In reality, mm-hmm. it's just about being a black person in, in Western societies and having to navigate white supremacy. The book is written by a gentleman called Dr. Boule Whitelaw III, who holds himself out as the world's leading expert on white people, or a whiteologist, as he calls himself. And he's got a PhD in white people studies. And he's basically this compendium of knowledge and racial rhetoric of white people, which often sounds insane until you realize that actually he is very, very sane. And the reality is that it might sound funny, but what he's saying is actually how things really happen. So he says the unstable things. So yeah, so going running along with the mess of with the joke, this gentleman contacted me out of the blue and wanted me to write this book with him. And I was stupid enough to get sucked into it. And here we are today. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we had all the trouble but there we go. <laughs> so as a fictional character, yep. what did Dr. Boulay give you the creative expression to say or write about that you might not necessarily have done as Nels Abbey? Everything. I wouldn't have done anything as Nels Abbey. <laughs> I wouldn't have done any of this. I could, there's no way. I mean, so I operate, so in terms of my nine to fives or so, like working or so, I was a banker for a very, very long time. And I worked my way up to a very senior level in banking pretty fairly quickly by, by banking standards, particularly if I'm kind of my sort of background, black working class. Then I moved mm-hmm. into media and I worked at a seniorish level. Yeah, but a good level over there too. So, and it's kind of funny. So I worked in predominantly white careers, very, very mm-hmm. white. And even though media likes to pose as liberal, there's nothing probable about it. Media is much more conservative than banking is by a country mile. Media is really 
Yes, it is. Yeah. The banking, they at least hire people. Banking at least hires right. black people. So media, I was kind of shocked when I, when I left banking and joined me. So banking, we always thought, oh my goodness, there's not enough black people here, not enough brown people, anybody else. But when I joined media, I realized that actually these guys are stuck somewhere in the 50s. This is crazy. So when I went to, I would pop into senior editorial meetings, for example, and yeah, they'll be all white then. Right. And right. so it was very, and so when you think of that, that this was the people conveying information to society. These are the people who are telling you, this is what you need to know today in order to understand how our society is working. And it was just one demographic. Yeah. And it was very, it was quite scary. So yeah, so walking in there was quite scary. Yeah, seeing that situation. And when you walk around, and it wasn't just one editorial meeting or two or three. If you go around all of them, the majority of them, particularly at the senior level, there was no diversity. Whatsoever. There was barely any diversity at all whatsoever. And it right. makes matters even worse where there was diversity. And it's something I alluded to in the book. It was often people who were very likely to agree with that world of view already. Mm. So when people speak of diversity of thought, that's actually the polar opposite. What people want is, is people who are going to think like them or so to come around the table and be with them. And so hence why I think like white men, that the yes men rule the world. People mm. want to hear people who think like them and agree with them. The relative matter. And I, and I really believe that. I don't think that as much as people would think that, yeah, your job is to come and disagree with me and tell me how I'm doing this wrong. No, everybody just wants to be told that look, your breath smells like perfume and the sun shines out of your forehead and everything else. Right. It doesn't work like that. So, yeah, people like confirmation bias, I think is the term. People like to be reaffirmed that their views are always right and are the prevailing views. And that's how it becomes. Right. So, yeah. But pre-social media, think of it. Yeah, pre-social media, there was no pushback whatsoever. It was just the news with the news with the news. And it was just white men dictating what was going on. Right. It, Think Like a White Man is written like a Machiavellian self-help, right? Like how to be the white man at his own game. And one of the questions yep. that I was thinking about as I was reading it, and obviously, you know, we've said this already, but this is, it is a st- satirical book. It's a satirical guide, but satire is based in truth. It comes from truth and that's what yep. makes it so funny or ironic. One of the things that I was thinking about as Dr. Boulay outlines how to, you know, get power in the way that white people get power, white men get power. I was really thinking about how do you maintain your sense of selfness as a black person? Like in trying to use these techniques, lose yourself as a black person, because he's not a person that's like become a white man. That's not what he's saying. Yeah, I think it's a good point, actually. It's a good point, because the reality of the matter is that, um, is that look, it's the same question as, do you go into the system to change the system? Do you change mm. the system, or does the system change you to become more mm. like it? In my experience, it's normally the system changes you. So when you go into mm. any form of profession or so, you'll probably find that you are eventually adopting the character, unless you are a very, very strong-willed person with a clear purpose set for yourself and the compass on how you're going to get achieve what you want to achieve. And you're very good at wearing a you're very good at wearing a mask and being two different people. Yeah. So it's very, very difficult to think that hey, that what you do for the majority of the day, eight hours of the day, and an hour either side commuting or so, and take away another eight hours or so sleeping or so that you want to, you're a human being, you want to rest or you want to write books, something else, you'll spend the majority of your healthy hours of the day inside this environment with people who they need to see you in them in order for you to excel 
in order for them to think that you're the right person in that environment, it is very, very difficult to actually maintain some some sense of self. It is very, very, mm. as the old, I think it's Hawthorne who wrote that, no person, no, he actually said no man, but no person could wear one face to themselves and another to the multitude without finally becoming bewildered as to which face may be true. It was so, such a sad thing that often I see young people, young black people, often go into their careers or so. Sometimes you see some of them really just assimilate and go far pretty quickly because of the fact that they've, they've either assimilated or they've been able to fake that assimilation. And some of them you see the, the lights dimming. You can see when they're not coping with it. And it's a sad thing when you see that situation. But um, the key thing here is, so back to just answer your question very, very directly in terms of maintaining a sense of self. I think it's so complex a question. It's so complex a question. Yeah. For me, how I maintain a sense of self is that at the core of everything I do, I always want to make sure people like myself were able to excel after me. And also, too, I wanted to mm. make situations better for people similar to me. It's, that was the yeah. driving ethos behind writing the actual book. And also, too, it's just, it's just who I am. I'm not an angel by any means. Actually, I should probably say I am an angel because if, if I walk out my house tomorrow and killed by the police or so, that would probably be the headline. You're not an, he's not an angel by his own words. <laughs> so I am an angel, just to be clear. By his own admission. By his own admission, he's not an angel. So I mean, this is the same thing about Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela just <laughs> throw away line. That became me. By his own admission, he's not an angel. The man was an angel. But back to it. So I think that maintaining a sense of, of really understanding your purpose and that's work off, and that's to, to boil it properly. Simplest thing to control that complaint. When you're doing why you're doing this, or so on, and what purpose are you doing it for? What what did you get into this for? Mm. And are you getting out of it what you want to get in? What you came into it for, or so, and that's that. So if I think of black professionals who've really done well, if I think of say there's a guy in America called Barack Obama, interesting guy. He's done okay for himself. He comes up a few times in your book, actually. <laughs> he does. He does come up a few times. But when you actually look at it, did you see him on The Breakfast Club last week? Or whenever, a couple of weeks no, ago? No, I have not yet. So I'm listening to his memoir first. Yeah. Oh, then you're going to listen to it. But there's one moment that you're going to watch him on The Breakfast Club. There was one moment where, I think they did a good quote, they did a job. David W. Shogart, who's a BBC British journalist, British historian, I should point out, an academic, did a very, very good job questioning him. I think for a broad mainstream audience, but when mm. it brought down to actually really getting Barack Obama asking tough questions on race from a black perspective and looking at what is it that you did for black people specifically or so to better mm. their lives. And they, I think Charlemagne's exact words were that things happened to us. Systems were put in place. Structures were put in place that put us in this situation. What did you do specifically to get us out of the situation? And Barack mm. Obama's answer, and they also asked him, we're not interested in the rising tide lifts all boats or anything else. We want to know specifically what happened for us because our boat has a hole in the bottom. Mm. Barack Obama gave a generalist answer. He gave pretty much the rising tide lift all boats answer, which was black people disproportionately benefited from my efforts. And I, could, I, I see that also. But with myself... I don't know, perhaps why I, probably, I doubt I'll probably become Prime Minister of the United Kingdom or President of the United States tomorrow. I would want to be able to answer that with absolute certainty. I would want to be able to say that this is the difference I made. And it cannot just mm. be about, hey, particularly for people like me, because people who are coming from our sorts of background go through vicious experiences sometimes if we're not careful, both here 
and in Africa. You've, you've lived on the continent yourself or so, you've seen about, I mean, Barack Obama's policies, for example, in Libya, the invasion of Libya. I was no fan of Muammar Gaddafi. I don't think it was good news. But the cascading of um, weapons from Libya or so down south into places like northern Nigeria led to my own brother getting kidnapped. And literally, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I had to negotiate my own brother's ransom to the point where we had to decide wow. what is the cutoff point for us to say he can die unless we can't, we don't have this money, so yeah, he could die. And my brother and myself, and a, God bless him, a gentleman at the BBC, he used to be part of the security services, helped us showed us how to negotiate literally with terrorists or so. Wow. And to go through that experience or so. And these are the things that people often don't know about or so, because again, when you see people like saying, hey, we need to go into this country or so, they just don't know the often the after effect it has on normal people. And for the first time in my life, I could think of, it came to my house. It came to my house. Right. It was something that was very, very, it was such a unique, harsh experience. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Just again, it's one of those moments in life where you're there, you can't believe what you're going through, that you're here talking to a person who's who's saying to you, if I call back and you do not have the right figure for me, I'm never calling again, which means they're going to kill your loved one. And can you imagine the impact it has? And that was six days of terror. And we could not tell British police and we could not tell Nigerian police because we knew that once the state gets involved, it becomes a bigger problem. And this has happened to lots of yeah. different people. So this has now become commerce, commercial activity on the ground. We just got lucky that he wasn't kidnapped by for political reasons or for religious reasons. It was just monetary. Mm. And so we could pay off money, but political and religious, the weapons in their hands and his body in their hands, it would have been a different thing altogether. Mm. So anyway, so yeah, so I think of those things in terms of like, yeah. So for myself, I think it's always just having a clear purpose and trying to make sure mm. that in any position that you're in, trying to have a clear, vivid understanding of the impact you could potentially have. So if I think of um, the predatory loans that in certain banks, for example, that were targeting ethnic minorities, particularly black people, which decimated black wealth for a very, very for generations to come, possibly, mm. because most people's wealth is held in their household. Um, if I think of those situations, I feel that there's much more that could have been done. And I feel that somebody, and I'm not critical of black man, I think he's done, he's pretty much walked on water. But to a certain degree, some other people or so, I hope the next Obama who's coming along or so has a bit more purpose and service towards black people in particular and can recognize those things. So if you take a look at what happened with the predatory loans, it meant that black people were getting their homes repossessed in large numbers, mm. which also meant that a bizarre thing happened during the Obama presidency in which the earnings of black people, the paycheck or so, actually went up. The wealth of black people went down. Mm. So earning more money does not necessarily mean that you're actually becoming wealthier or so, that you're earning money, that money is just, that's liquidity. That means the money you're using to live on a day-to-day basis. Wealth is often tied into your assets. And if your assets have been stripped away from you or so, you're having to restart again or so, it becomes much more difficult, particularly as the housing market grows too, because getting mm. back on that ladder becomes increasingly more difficult. So yeah, so there's a, or the same with stocks and shares or anything else. So it's a difficult one to answer your question in terms of how do you sure you don't lose who you are? The answer is a lot of people do lose who they are. And a lot of people just have to right. wear two separate faces, one for work yeah. and one for outside of work. Yeah. There was something that really struck me as I was reading your book that this was like a, a satirical survival guide for, in this context, Black people in the professional world. But as you said, 
in the world. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, in, in me and white supremacy, I talk a lot about these different ways that white supremacy shows up in personal interactions. Yeah. And it's like, he's showing that in these really tangible ways and saying, this is how the world is. Yeah. This is how it operates. Like you can want it to be different. You talk about, you know, there's no space for compassion and empathy because yeah. the white man doesn't respond to that, right? You can't be an activist in the workplace because these will be the consequences of that happening. I wonder, and I was thinking of, when I was reading the book, I was thinking of my brother. So one of my brothers, uh, the one who came after me, I'm the eldest, he came after me. He is obviously a black man who, he lives in the UK, in London, works in the financial services industry, is an investment strategist. Good. A lot of his colleagues are white. And up until I would say this year, he had some conversations before and was doing some work around race and diversity, but this year really <laughs> ramped it up. Yeah, right? yeah. I think both the impact of what the various things that have happened this year, the lynching of George Floyd, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, and so on and so forth. Also, my my book becoming what it is and him being my sibling. Yeah. And people going to him, have you heard of this person? And he's like, that's my sister. <laughs> I've heard of her. But he for the first time has been really vocal about race and racism in his industry. And my mom is like, is this going to be okay? Are you going to get fired? You know, it's okay for Layla to do this. She's self-employed. You yeah. need this job, right? You can't be an activist. Let her be the activist. Let her do those things. So when I was reading your book about that, you can't be an activist, it just yeah. made me chuckle because so many people this year are for the first time saying, I'm not going to bite my tongue anymore. I'm not going to hold it back anymore. I'm going to say what's going on. Do you think, because this book was written pre-2020, right? Oh, yeah, Pre-COVID, yeah, yeah, pre the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. Do you think if you had written this book now, it would be written differently because of the freedom that we feel to say what we really feel? Nope, it would not be written differently. <laughs> the word would be different. Look, as I often say to people, look, a poll just came out yesterday in Britain and it found that a majority of people in Britain, which is inadvertently a majority of white people, a significant majority of white people, thought that the Black Lives Matter movement has set back race relations in Britain or, to use their exact words, had increased racial tension in Britain. Oh, wow. So I was at the height of within about a month of George Floyd being lynched, which is what it was. And I'm glad you used that with the right word. I was invited onto a podcast on Channel 4 with Christian Guru Murphy. Mm. He asked me that question. Do you think this is it? Do you think this is that period? Is this the me? Is the fall of the wall? Is this the Me Too moment on race? And should be told, I don't think the Me Too moment on, femi- on sexism or sexual abuse was turned out as we thought it would. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the fall of the world, but in retrospect right now, even at that moment, part of me just felt myself, I know this game too much. I just think to myself how it tends to work. That, yeah, we do have some degree of freedom to talk a little bit more. And we're getting a lot of the lovely signaling. I don't know if you saw the adverts for Sainsbury's, for example, in the UK. I did. I wanted to ask you about a post that you put out that is, again, one of your Instagram posts that I see yeah. and just chuckle to myself. Yes. You had an Instagram post. I wonder if I have it here, actually. Is it the one about the board? It was. So you said, I do have it here. You said, great that Sainsbury's. So for context, because I know we have listeners and viewers who are not British and may not know what Sainsbury's is. So can you tell them what Sainsbury's is and what you were referring to in this post? And then I'll read it out. 
So Sainsbury's is a large supermarket in the UK. I think the, it might be the biggest or the second biggest. It's a it's an establishment supermarket in Britain. It's really it's a, they sell good food. They really they sell good food at nice prices in, in large quantities. I would say, and I think that I was just looking at. It. So they had created an advert in Britain which had nothing for black people in the advert or so, which was fairly. Which trust me, in Britain that's a revolutionary act. And it wasn't about race. No, it was it just an advert. Gravy sharing black people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and yeah, British people, not just not all British people, but enough racists went crazy on social media. And I mean, they went absolutely crazy or so. They thought that this advert was the front and they should change the name from Sainsbury's to Blackberries and all sorts of other bits and bobs. So this is Britain. We are not good at anti-racism. We are very good on racism. Right. So there we go. So you said in this post, great that Sainsbury's has 100% Black people in their Christmas advert. Shame that Sainsbury's has 0% Black people on their board and executive leadership teams. The game, dot, 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 is the game. The game is the game. That's how it goes. I was like, that is so Dr. Boulay. That is so what Dr. Boulay would say. The, the game is the game. Don't get it twisted. This is the game. This is the game. So look, even... All the supermarkets, Sainsbury's, Asda, all the co-op, Tesco, yeah. they've all come together to do like a Avengers, anti-racist Avengers advert that went out last week Friday, but I, don't, I didn't even get to see it. And they've all come to stand, take a stand against racism. And I put up a post saying that, well, this is all nice and lovely that you're taking a stand against racism or so against anonymous online trolls who probably got free, probably some Jerry Springer contestant with free teeth sat in a soiled Union Jack flag in some damp house somewhere or so. That is great, but it's easy anti-racism. There's no threat to it whatsoever. So I just pointed out the next thing was that there's some deportations taking place to Jamaica on Wednesday next week or so. 80-something of us have had prominent black people had to come together and call for the government to scrap the deportations. That is racism. Some of these people have been in this country since they were children or so. The governments themselves are just coming off the back end the Jim Crow South did not deport black people in America. No. The Jim Crow, they enslaved black people before it became Jim Crow, but it did not deport black. Britain deported its own citizens back to the Caribbean and Africa. Right. And they're about to do something similar again. Maybe it's a bit more complex this time around, but it's the same thing. We don't want these people here, and that's pretty much it. And um, my thinking was, well, guys, you've got your, your feet wet now with anti-racism adverts. Why not speak up on this one? Because it's very easy to offer people the pawn of white supremacy and just say, oh, yeah, well, this guy over here with free teeth, with free teeth and a swastika tattooed on his forehead, that's the white supremacist or so. But in reality, the matter or so, it's a lot more ingrained than that. And when you look at the immigration policy or so, that is often ingrained white supremacy. Donald Trump made it explicit in America that, yeah, this is what's, yeah. this is what's actually happening. And my thing was, well, you've got the power, you've got the popularity, and you also now have the experience. Use it. Use some of that to actually save people's lives where it matters on the hard basis. That it's lovely to have an advert. An advert is good PR. This, potentially, and also to fighting powerless racism, is easy. It's porn. You're you're taking out the porn. Take out a racist king or queen on the chest set for us or so. And then then I will applaud you. Don't get me wrong. I think your advert of all black people sharing gravy and chicken legs and all stuff, that's amazing. Uh, It's really lovely ad, I will say. It's lovely lovely ad. But it's also the kind of thing that people say, oh, well done, Sainsbury's. Look how diverse they are. Look how anti-racist they are. Whereas behind the scenes, as you said, things are the same. The people pulling the strings, 
people actually in power, the people who have a say, it's the same. Yeah. My friend, there was an old video one time. I remember the first, I was quite young, and this is when Jay-Z has first blown up within the first couple of years. So after 1998, when Jay-Z became a really big concept, but then there was one moment where it was, you know those shows where they show you on MTV like a day in the life of somebody? So they yeah. did a day in life with Jay-Z or something that effect. And then uh, there's one moment, Jay-Z, they had the camera on Jay-Z walking along. But then I think they just paired back a little bit. And then they showed all the people around Jay-Z. And it was just nothing but white people. And I thought to myself, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on here? You're a black rapper for crying out loud. And um, right there, then it dawned on me, like, oh, no, a second, something's going on. But it just showed to me also, too, that this guy's becoming somebody very important very quickly because you've got so many white people around you. They're not there for no... That's they're right. all getting paid. They're there for a good reason or so. So that means... The level of executive that's dealing with you is just, at least notionally or so, has just become to a different level or so. And I just want to say, this is just a bizarre thing. And the same thing happens again. I'm a big Jay-Z fan. But I remember when they showed his title, his rec, his streaming service. Yes. When they actually showed the staff of the streaming service. And they showed the whole staff. And it was him, Beyonce, with the only two black people in the entire room. It's just a room full of And I thought, so this is just fascinating. That what's, What is going on over here? And I know when I got into banking, I saw the same thing too. There would always be the whole, yeah, we're passionate about equality and diversity. You think to yourself, really? So how come I'm the only black person in here? I mean, and that was it. Right. So, yeah. My first, uh, there was a very, really funny, you know, when you're, when you're in a job and they do your surveys, for example, they do surveys of how you think the department's going and what's happening and your thoughts of how the year's gone and everything else. So they assured us all that those surveys were anonymous. Okay. That, so you could speak your heart, you could speak your mind. And I spoke my mind in the survey, and that was it. And the survey was anonymous, except for the fact they just asked about your demographics. And I happened right. to be the only non-white <laughs> person there. And then, um, <laughs> so, so everyone else's was anonymous except yours. Yeah, so, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> they just said that, yeah, so at one point they just said, so when they were reading the feedback to us about two months later, they said, yeah, so some of our more diverse staff, more ethnically diverse staff, are not pleased with how things are going. And I thought I said, hold oh, on wow. a second. And then people start You're asking. looking around. <laughs> Who? <laughs> I noticed the eyes on me. You know, when you get up oh, and I just stopped the eyes and be like, hold on. Yeah. More ethnic than that first time. That, that's me. I'm the only yeah. non-white person here. So then they just thought right. that they never fill in with those surveys again. That's a, that was a huge disaster. But there we go. But it's funny, but it's also so representative of so many people's experiences of being the only or being one of a a small group, right? And then how free do you feel to truly express yourself, to truly share your experiences? There's There's an exchange in your book where a Black man, I think, has gone to HR to ask he's made a complaint that I've been doing so well, I'm hitting and exceeding all my targets. You know, I've been identified as being groundbreaking and bringing these groundbreaking ideas. And yet I'm not getting the pay raise that I think I deserve. And people who are doing far less work than me are getting paid more than me. And he gets asked the question by the white HR woman who tries to sympathize with him and say, do you think it's because of your race? Because, you know, as a woman, I know what it's like to be discriminated against. And, you know, he has that moment of, do I say it's about my race or what do I do? Right. And then he decides to say, yeah, I think that's why. And Dr. Boulay, you know, says that's the end of your career. Like, that's it. That's the end of that job. It's done. 
you cannot say that it's because of your race. Yeah. It like you write it in a funny way, but it's like it's one of those things as I'm reading your book. It's funny, but it's also like, oh, you know, <laughs> so mad because yeah, these yeah. are people's real experiences. Yeah. It's uh, what I tend to do, actually, that very moment there, I often rewrite it as a script. So whenever I'm doing events in corporations, for example, I just pick two people. I always show up with a with a wig and a waistcoat. So I get a man <laughs> to play the HR lead and a woman to play the man. And then they're just the reverse roles. I get them to just read out the script to each other. And the very moment where the lady <laughs> says, does race have anything to do with it? I tell them to stop right there and then. And then we mm. then go around the room and say, how should he answer that question? Mm. And I just go around. So then I'm essentially forcing people to think like a white man. To think like mm. a black person who's having to think like a white man or so. And then it's literally just that exercise. And then right there and then, and I say to them, look, remember, this is just role play. You have no emotional baggage here whatsoever. You have no element to worry about losing your job. You You're no not going to lose your job, right? <laughs> you just need to uh, tell me how should he answer this question. His name was, um, I think it was Jerome. Yeah, how should Jerome answer this question? And it's so That's interesting. Ty- Tyrone. Yeah, Tyrone. Yes, Tyrone. Yeah, the story of Tyrone. Yes. Yeah, big part, yeah. Tyrone Badu. So in the book, I actually called him Tyrone Badu from Erica Badu. So <laughs> called him Tyrone. But I then go around the room. It's so interesting when I see the faces because the white men who are there, you can see that it's not an easy thing for them to answer. And you'll get mm. some bright spark who just say, actually, he should dodge the question, hand it back to him and say one for another. I say to him, so that means he doesn't get any pay rise. He doesn't get anything else or so. But at least he lives another day. Mm. And that means the pay gap, that's how the pay gap then actually occurs. And then everything else. And then um, it's just around the room and you just realize, quickly realize it's a cash win too. But literally, either right. you lose or you lose. And it's just fascinating. I like seeing, I, I love doing it. It's such an exercise because number one, I love seeing the man sat there with a blonde wig on or so and everything else. And I love seeing, because what I tend to do, I bring, a, I, I thought, say I bring a waistcoat a tie and a do-rag so the woman who's playing the guy or so has to wear has to wear a do-rag oh my too. goodness so you play the black professional and everybody says would a black professional really wear a do-rag i said just listen just play along with it and so it's fun <laughs> up until that moment where well, everybody has to answer the question how should he respond to the question and, it, and people quickly then realize how difficult this is because it yeah. rolls off the tongue but it's very very difficult yeah. And which makes me think about, you know, your book is, it's laying the white man's game clear, clearly out for us to understand and see how it works so that we can figure out how to navigate it. But how do we take what we're learning? And I'm thinking particularly for black professionals, but also black people just navigating white spaces in general, especially where how you show up will directly impact your job, your security, your money, things like that, right? Your reputation, things of that nature. How can black people, it's kind of similar to what I asked you before is how do you maintain that sense of self? But it's more than that. It's how do we navigate these spaces in ways that are empowering to us, right? So I remember doing the Me and White Supremacy Instagram challenge. And I remember so many black women DMing me and telling me how hard it was to see the challenge and seeing people writing that, you know, white people writing their responses, but it was also very cathartic. And it was also very freeing because they were able to see, okay, I'm not just imagining that these things happen to me. These people are saying they do them. So now I know it's real. 
right? I can stop gaslighting myself. I can stop denying that these things are happening. And then I can just live the way that I want to live because they're going to think whatever they're going to think of me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's like the game is the game, right? So if this is the game and we, we know how it operates, how do we then navigate those spaces and win, right? Like, and by win, I mean, I don't mean win like a white man and become a colonist and a capitalist, right? And take over the world, but actually have a strong sense of dignity, a sense of success and achievement on our own terms, protect and take care of ourselves, things of that nature. Yeah, it's a very good question again. So in doing that analysis and driving it all down, so I think that the sad reality is that often, or the advice that was given to me and often that the advice that I've had to take on board is that you, as a black person, a professional, you are almost at times preparing for your your next day, your mm. next step or so. And by that, by that, I mean literally preparing for yourself for catastrophe. So yeah. having a backup income, creating an entity outside of the business or so that you just, you can switch to or so and get things done. Often, I remember when I was in the, when I was working, when I was in the hiring of hiring, no, never the firing business, so that was not really my thing, but when we were hire people, often people would look at CVs. I remember we were just probably saying that we'll get recruitment agents to sell, send us about 12 CVs. And recruitment agents were a big problem, part of the problem too, I must add. But then we'll look at those CVs and then sometimes you would see a black name, a name that I knew was black anyway, or whether it's a Nigerian or Ghanaian name or Eastern African name or anything else. Or a Tyrone, who you just know no white parents calling themselves their child Tyrone or so. And you'd often see that person's moved around a lot more. Mm. And what would happen is in so the norm would be, okay, over the course of 10 years or so, you might say this person's worked in two organizations, an average person's worked in two organizations. And you might find that this person's moved around to five or six organizations at that time. And then the other people would say, hey, well, Maybe it's just not that good, or maybe she's just not stable, or something like that. Maybe she just look at another CV that got great experience, but just, and I would often think to myself, I knew what it was. I just say, but I couldn't say it out, but I just know that this is somebody dodging racism. Mm, yes, this is somebody who is going through. I just knew it that this is somebody who's going through a tough time or so, who doesn't want to just sit there and collaborate with their own subjugation. It is difficult to sit in a place mm. knowing that you are being underpaid compared to your peers and you're working harder than them it is difficult to sit anywhere and actually and and collaborate with your own subjugation knowing going day in day out that injustice burns a lack of dignity or or having to reaffirm your own dignity is a necessity in life and so knowing all those things or so the norm is for anybody with any self-respect they not only self, but for anybody with the ability not self-respect that's a harsh thing to say they pick themselves up and they move only to find that it's systematic. I don't know if you saw Dave Chappelle's, Dave Chappelle gave this really great speech the other day where he was speaking about why he left his show, the Chappelle show mm-hmm. from the early from the early 2000s, and then why people should boycott. I think they, he, he turned down a very big check, right? Yeah, 50 million, turned down mm-hmm. 50 million. He walked away from 50 million, but now those shows are being put in all the streaming services and he's not getting paid from them. And he just told people to boycott him to not watch the show. And he's asked Netflix to take it down, and Netflix were kind enough to take it down and not broad, not broad, not broadcast it and everything else. And he points mm. out about the, how traumatic a period it was for him. And whether Dave Chappelle does something like that, he, was a, he turned down 50 million for whatever reason or so, he walked away. 
it doesn't surprise me as much. When people really were shocked by it, it wasn't until when I went into professional work myself that I realized that, yeah, that, okay, I can see why people walk away. Why people get to mm. pick themselves up and walk away sometimes. And I, I've seen it many, many, many times. I remember, I'll give you another point. There was a friend of mine who was working in a large asset management business for myself. And her and I were meant to go for, uh, meant to go out, meant to go out, I don't know, I think we were just meant to meet up on Friday evening because we both worked in the same department. But I went home on Friday evening. She said, no, I'll give her a couple of hours, three hours or so. She said, we'll both, we'll both catch up. I know she was being bullied at work. And this was an amazing, a beautiful spirit and soul and person. And then, and she said, yeah, she'll give me a call so I can meet her up and then we'll just meet up at wherever we're going to meet up. And the call never came. And I thought, so, okay, a bit rude. But that was that. And then a call never came on Saturday or even an apology never came. And by this point, I was really, really fed up. So I thought, so, okay, this is quite rude of her or so. And that was that. And then on Sunday morning, I got a text message just saying, please come and pick me up. And then I texted her back and said, where are you? And she said, I'm in the office. I've been here ever since. She had been in the office from Friday morning right the way through to Sunday morning, working nonstop. She, I went to go and pick her up in the office. And she was a black lady, of course. I went to go pick her up in the office. She, when she got to the office, so she sat down in my car. She came outside, passed out in my car, and said, can you please take me to my house? I took her to her house. And then she picked up. She went inside. She made me a cup of tea. Then she came out after and said, can you take me to the airport? I took her to the airport. She went to Brazil, and she never returned. Wow. So that was it. So these were the harshnesses these things are so that people experience sometimes that it can go in dark places. Mm. But she was lucky she never returned. I got lucky that I never worked with anybody who felt the need to harm themselves in that degree, to, in, that, in, in a horrible way. But she was somebody who I know it went to an extreme. So that element in which um, somebody might feel that their job is at threat or so and how do you respond to it and everything else that if you've not got your next day prepared, so with myself, for example, taking a step away over the last couple of years to do my own thing, yeah, I feel that I cannot lie to you. And I'm pretty sure that if I start, a lot of black people I've been speaking to in recent times since the lockdown started, a lot of people are finding that their health has actually improved during the lockdown more so than the other way around, particularly their mental health has improved. I've heard that a lot, actually. Uh, Yeah, I've definitely heard it a lot from people who, went from working in an office to working from home that there has been and also to black people who are parents who have black children who feel that their children are now safer because they're at home rather than being either at school and having to deal with racism at school or having to deal with racism on the streets yeah it speaks volumes that look it speaks volumes that look hey it does so the recalibration of our society when you're, you're able to dodge, because racism is such a tax. It's such an, mm-hmm. a burden on you. It's a financial tax. It's an emotional tax. It's a spiritual tax. It's a political tax. Even when, if you just touch on the political side of things, racism means that we are, can never really be full participants in re- Western democracies because one party is always going to be on the extreme racist side of things. And the other party or so is going to go to the mild side of things. So we're always going to have to pick the milder party or so, unless you're crazy right. and go to go to the extreme party. So, for example, in America, um, African Americans don't really have much of a democratic space. That it's either vote for the Democrats or say that and sit down at home or waste your vote or so. Right. That's a two-party system because the Republicans have made themselves so anti-black, so synonymous with white supremacy or so, explicit white supremacy, which is clearly right. an issue also for the Democrats also. But to a point where Participation in democracy is 
as in literally you go into the booth and have a real choice or so is non-existent mm. you don't really have a choice you are just there you're just part of the turnout to get the numbers up for democrats who don't really have to do anything for you in return and similar in yeah. britain where voting for the i mean the conservative party in britain i don't know if you've been watching what's going on here but it's, it's insane it's crazy what's going on there's a lady the equalities minister <laughs> basically a ruckus uh he's been the british equalities minister you post about her often <laughs> I cannot, do you know why the funny thing about it is that we are from the same place we're both nigerians and she says so much stuff about nigeria that it's just not true mm. and sometimes she's just not well thought through and i feel a bit bad for her because she doesn't want anything to do with race but Boris Johnson yes. has pushed her into this position, which she's not equipped for. She's ran away from her entire life or so. And now she's been pushed mm-hmm. here and she's having to figure this stuff out. She's getting into, but she criticised someone like René Delodge. Yeah, René Delodge is one of the best thought through people on this subject in the world. Amen. Yes. In the world. And you are one of the worst thought through people on this subject in the world. And for some bizarre right. reason, it's kind of like I described it to my friend. It's like, do you ever watch wrestling, Layla? So if you think of wrestling... I used to when I was a kid, actually. Yes, so I did. Yeah. I'll give you a classic example. Okay. The Lodge is Hulk Hogan or the Ultimate Warrior. Also, okay. Right? In terms of actually understanding race and being able to explain what's happening in our society. Then Kemi Badenoch, who is the Equalities Minister in Britain, is a guy called Jeff in his grey wife fronts in the ring who literally is just there to get to take a battering or so <laughs> to keep the show on the road. And that's pretty much it. Uh, everybody knows which way this fight is going to end. Uh, they, they probably don't even get to bother introducing you. You're just a prop. You're just a prop there. And for some bizarre reason, you think it's yourself. Normally, Jeff in the ring in his wife fronts, his great wife fronts, doesn't say anything. But for some bizarre reason, this Jeff feels that he stands a chance. And I just think to myself, this is this is the insanity of Britain. That it just uh, I don't know. It's it's a, it's a crazy sad situation that that racism. I was going to write a satire about it. That racism has been good to Britain. That Britain has owes a lot to racism or so. And now asking Britain to divorce itself from racism or so. Yes, it's a hard sell because a lot of people know. Yes, and there's actually a quote of yours as we're winding up. There's a quote of yours that I want to read from the book. You said, no matter what shenanigans and criminality it may have embarked on, Britain has always cloaked itself and marketed itself in the translucent cloth of philanthropy and humanitarianism, prospectively and retrospectively, even if that means destroying all evidence to the contrary. And I was just like, underline that many times. Because there's the propaganda that it tells itself about itself. And then there's the realities of the way that it shaped the world. Yeah. Right. And and shaped our lives and why we are even ha- here having this conversation today. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you look at it, so, I mean, it is so vast that it's hard to actually really pinpoint and explain the role Britain played in actually cascading white supremacy and racism around the world. It's hard to really document it because yeah. you're going from place to place to place to place. Think of Nigeria, for example. Nigeria is the most populated African nation. It's got about 200 million people today, right? Nigeria is literally about 400 different nations all amalgamated into one for Britain's interest. So when you go to Nigeria today right now, there's loads of people speaking loads of different languages. I'm from a place called Shikiri land, which most people, in, even in Nigeria, most people have never heard of Shikiri people. So when you speak mm. to somebody's Yoruba, Hausa or Igbo, who themselves were told that you are the three main tribes, even the concept of a tribe, as in a tribe 
suggest that about maybe a couple of hundred people or something just like this, that there's more Yoruba people yes. than there are British people. There's about 70 million um, Yoruba people, and then there's about 65 million British people. And Yoruba land is bigger than Britain. But for some bizarre reason, Yoruba people are a tribe, yet Scottish people, mm. who are about 4 million people, less than the population of London, are a nation. Right. So it's subjugative colonial language, the notion of a tribe, even when you think of the Native American tribes. You would think that when I was little, I used to think that, hey, the, the Indian tribes, the Native American tribes, there was a couple of hundred people. I didn't know it was millions of people who were massacred. Right. Well, I think, that, I mean, the way that American history is taught to within a British curriculum, I don't know how it is now, but when we were growing up, was very other and yeah. very much this myth of this mystical Native American, right? And the reality is obviously so, so different. But I, I remember doing some research earlier this year about colonialism and how many Native American people were wiped out by the first Europeans that got yeah. to the Americas because of disease, right? And it was yeah. like, it wasn't a few people, but that's the way that the story is told, right? Yeah. It's told as it, that word tribe, like you said, makes it seem like it's a really small group of people. It was yeah. a lot more than in the entirety of Europe. So you know, <laughs> it's a lot of people. Yeah, even when we look at things like the word colonialism, for example, mm -hmm. it is such a sanitizing word because when you're actually digging yes. down deep into what that word actually means and the actions that that word is actually sanitizing with the actions that the, all the set of policies and actions and beliefs that actually underpin that term or so, it was horrendous. So the term colonialism sounds lovely or so, but when you turn around and start to dig deep into, hey, what happened in Kenya during the Mau Mau uprising or so? How did Nigeria become, how did 400 disparate groups become one country? We look at it like the place, the Benin Empire. It was literally an empire. Now it's just a small region in Nigeria. Right. And that's pretty much it. So we, an empire, great empire or so with their bronzes and their art went around the world, still in the British region till this very day. Yeah, for some bizarre region, it just became, yep, you're all one big, conglomerate just boom Nigeria and I, I believe in pan-Africanism I think that Africans should be to get rid of the silly European borders and create one profound nation which is the only way to root to power for us I believe it would make a strong Africa because I don't really believe that hey the Togo or Benin Republic being beside Nigeria one speaking French one speaking English or so having trade borders and also, it's crazy it's never going to work mm. but the more I just think of everything that's happened to us collectively and the role that colonialism and the enslavement and everything else has played and the cascading of white supremacy which is what colonialism and white, uh, the slavery were for capitalist for commercial benefit so it's it's a fascinating thing and the language that's come with it even sometimes I often say to people that uh, often argue people that try not to use the word colonialism try and use the word white supremacist rule or so mm. <laughs> or genocidal white supremacy and it becomes mm. a little bit easier to understand what you're looking at over here when we say this thing but it's language just the way it is it's language is power and language is also yes. history too at the same time and it tells a lot of stories yeah i appreciate that so we're going to wrap up our conversation it's been really fascinating and i really want to encourage people to get your book so I one question but i have another one i know that we've gone a little over our time but right. i'm really curious to know you know, the book was published in the UK. It's now being published in the US as yep. well. It's available in the US. British humor is very unique. Like yep. I remember growing up, you know, we, we would watch shows like The Real McCoy and things yeah, like yeah. that, right? Like black, real black British humor. And I remember growing up and we didn't have a lot of American TV shows 
yeah. in the UK at the beginning. We do obviously now. But I remember first watching American humor and being like, it's too in your face. Like it's too obvious, right? <laughs> British humor sort of operates at this satirical level. In publishing the book to the US, were there things that you had to change or Americanize, I guess, in a way? Or is, did you feel like the humor still comes through in the same way? I felt that if there's any problem, it was more the other way around. The feeling was that the publisher wanted to make things a lot more British friendly at times. So it was written in a British voice or so. Yes. So blackness has dominated. Yeah, you don't just cover the UK in your book. Yeah, so what I wanted to write was, I wanted to write a black book. I wanted to write the blackest book possible or so. So that was just so unbelievably blackity black, 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 black. And I wanted to be black across the board. So it's something that you could pick up wherever you were. Yeah. Wherever there's a black population, particularly with the European presence there or so, that so yes. you can understand the elements of the because look, if you're if you're in Nigeria where there's not too many white people, so a lot of this will probably go over your head because you don't have to deal with racism. You have to deal with horrible stuff. You have to deal with Buhari, but you don't have to deal with, with Boris Johnson. Right. <laughs> which is a very different kettle of chips. But my objective is to write a black book that would just be something that black people pick up wherever they may be and feel the humor. So I want it to be something where if you listen to an Eddie Murphy, a Richard Pryor, a Gina Yashere, for example, and heard their jokes, that you could recognize that these were the people who inspired the humor here, but he's just writing on something serious. Mm. Yeah, hopefully we did that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So I want to leave this conversation before my final, final question. I want to leave this conversation with an inspiring, uplifting, empowering message for Black people, Black professionals who don't want to think like a white man, (laughs) who want to succeed, but on their own terms and who want to thrive. What words of inspiration do you have for them or advice? My advice would be, uh, okay, I'll give you some words of inspiration would be, no matter how bad today is, tomorrow could always be worse. <laughs> that. That's not inspiring. <laughs> that is not inspiring at all. That's just horrible. No, um, inspiring words. Non Brule White Lies, Brule White Lores, inspiring words. Like, look, for you to be where you are right now, so it means that you've worked very, very hard or so, and you are truly, truly, truly a special person. You are an Olympian of skill. When it comes of professional skill, because you are where you are truly on merit. No mm. one has helped you get here or so. No one paid for you to get into university. No celebrity mum paid for you to get into the university unless you're adopted by some sort of white celebrity. You were, congratulations, you got it made. You should not be working right now. You should be somewhere counting your money. <laughs> but there's no shortcuts for us or anything else. There's always only ever the long route. And we have to go around longer and, and run faster and harder or so. But you've made it. And you're going to continue making it or so. And I think that you should be proud of yourself and recognize that, look, that you are where you are and you're going to where you're going to. And you're going to get there with your head up high. I love that. Thank you. And just that reminder, I think, as well, that we're not alone, right? Because so often we feel like we're navigating these spaces alone. But the more I talk to different people, the more I'm like, we're navigating them together together absolutely yeah absolutely we are navigating these spaces together we swim together we are birds of a feather. <laughs> we flock together. all right our final question that we ask every guest what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor it means to, to live with purpose and to set the groundwork for the people coming after you to make the lives of the people coming after you easier mm. and make the memories and the thoughts and and those who came before you to make them proud of you that you've done something that you've made a contribution that 
you've made a difference. And I think that's the key thing. You've made a positive difference. Yeah. And I just stated before, you've made those that came before you proud and you made those that came after you not just proud, but you made their lives easier or so. And I think when we all do that by our hard work and creating methods and technologies and satirical books to help us all get by. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you, Nels. You're definitely making so many of us proud what you've contributed into the world with this book, which is such a one of a kind book. There have been many anti-racism books published this year, but also in the years prior. This is the first time that I have seen a satirical self-help book that lays lays it all bare um, and does it in such a wonderful way. So thank you for what you've contributed to the world, for your good ancestorship, your good ancestor work. I cannot wait to see more of what you write. I can't wait to read it. And I know that one reader at a time, you're opening people's eyes and you are also empowering us as Black people to own our voice and to own our power. So thank you. Thank you so much, Vela. Bless you. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for you having me. And thank you to you for being the inspiration and the great ancestor yourself too. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor Podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.